You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Thursday, July 2nd, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined right now by Ed Harrison from Washington, D.C. Welcome, Ed. Good to talk to you, Ash. Good to, good to be back with you. Yeah, I'll actually, to be honest with you, I'm really looking forward to the July 4th weekend. So this is, uh, this is the last thing that we're doing right before uh, it's, uh, it's vacation. I'm not going out to any bars, but I, I'm going to have a good time. Yes, I would say I am probably now 80% recovered from the crypto gathering. Yes, 80% as opposed 80%. to 100%. Still a little tired. Yeah, I can imagine. But a great uh, a great couple of days. And, uh, you know, obviously yesterday we uh, had a conversation uh, with Max Weathy talking about it. And, uh, you know, it's really funny. I was reading the comments, as, as we always do. Uh, and it was immediate that people picked up on the on the vibe that was going on. Max is a little bit crypto skeptic. Uh, and uh, so that was a sort of a fun dynamic. And, you know, we didn't plan that. That just sort of happened organically. So I thought it was interesting. Yeah, and I think people, they, they like Max's style. And one other thing, I've mentioned it once or twice before, they like your a mic. Uh, and I think someone asked what kind of mic that is. What kind of mic is that? I believe it is a HyperX Quadcast uh, gaming mic. Yeah, so it's good. It has good sound. It looks good. Uh, you know, I, I thought that was a great uh, RVDB. And, uh, and so it's good to have Max in the mix. We're going to have yes. Max on Monday because you're going to be off. Uh, so people will get a chance to uh, to see him again, be Mr. Skeptical, but this time toward me. Oh, fun. That's great. It does It does sort of create a cool dynamic because you could tell he was like, I, why, why do I need this? Why, why do I need this? Why do I care? Yeah, I, I, I like Max's skepticism. Yes, me too. Uh, talking of RVDB, we also have something special planned for tomorrow. That's right. Yeah. So it's uh, ask uh, myself anything, ask us anything. I think uh, we're taking some questions, you and I. We actually already taped it because we're not going to be working tomorrow. But uh, it's just questions that people have about uh, things that we've done on the platform and uh, interviews that we've had in the past. Yeah. Talking of which, Thursday is the new Friday. Uh, jobs report NFP out today, last trading day of the week in observance of the July 4th holiday tomorrow on the 3rd. You've got all the numbers, Ash, so why don't you break down what the numbers say for us, and then we can talk about what those numbers mean. Yeah, so it's a complex and nuanced report. Unemployment rate declined to 11.1%. This is the U3 number, the benchmark number. It had been 13.3% in May. Um, the U6 number, this is the broader measure of uh, employment utilization, uh, dropped uh, from 21.2% in May down to 18% in June. Now, the good news on the U3 number uh, was that the consensus estimate was 12.4, and it finished lower than that, 11.1%. Uh, but here's the downside. The data were collected during the second week of June, so that's prior to the rise in infection rates of COVID, uh, and prior, of course, 
to the rollback of the reopening that we've seen uh, in quite a few states. Unemployment is still at post-World War II highs. And one final shout out to any silver lining, the permanent job loss number rose to nearly uh, 600, rose nearly 600,000 uh, to nearly 2.9 million. That's a really high number. Yeah, so I think that there's a lot to break down there. Uh, yeah. the, here's how I break it down in terms of just looking at the jobs numbers themselves, not thinking about them contextually, but the numbers themselves are good. So the numbers in terms of the directionality and the the how quickly it's moving in that direction are all positive, and they're beating con they're beating consensus estimates. So the 11%, 11.1 was really actually 12.1% because, you know, that anomaly that in terms of the reporting is still in there, but that was still uh, lower than the numbers that they expected. The number of jobs added to the economy, those were higher than expected. So all of that in terms of just from a very localized perspective says that this is a good report in and of itself. And, and can you ex explain that anomaly? Yeah, so the anomaly is is that they misclassified people in a way that makes them seem like they're actually employed, but really under normal circumstances, uh, they would actually be unemployed. So really, in the past, we've seen as much as 3%. Now that number is down to 1%. They're still having problems with that classification. I don't know why that problem exists, it's, if it's because of the way people are answering the question and there's a misclassification. but. Uh, there's a footnote that the BLS, that's the Bureau of Labor Statistics, is putting in their numbers so that we know that that misclassification is there. Why, you know, why they don't just, you know, add it on automatically, I don't know. But nothing is, nothing is simple in that. Right. I, I think it just goes to to the the, the magnitude of the um, employment problem that we're having. That th this is the first time that our statisticians in government are having you know, major problems in terms of flow of the data. It's just so overwhelming. And, and coordinating that and putting those in the right buckets is very difficult. Yeah. I look at that U6 number that you talked about, the 21 down to 18% number, as more indicative of where we are. So one-fifth of the, of the workforce out of employment. And then probably, you know, when you think of workforce participation rates, there's still another cohort of people who have dropped out of the labor force who actually really would want to work. So we're yeah. still in a very big hole. But yeah. you know, just going to the, the localized number, the number is good in and of itself. So what it says is, is, is that you know, we had a massive cratering in uh, March, April, and in May and June, what we're seeing is that those numbers are bouncing back in a V-shaped uh, pattern. And so the question is, is how long can that V continue on? And, and how many months would it take for that V to uh, recoup where we are before? The number as of today to recoup where we are before is 14.7 million. That is 14.66 million people more were employed before the pandemic than are employed now. And so you can imagine, even if you had, uh, let's say, another two or three million over the next uh, two or three months, 500,000 a month after that, that's probably two years before you get to the levels that you need to get to. So mm. uh, that's even before we start talking about uh, the rollback and other double dips and things of that nature. So the numbers themselves are good, but there's a huge caveat.
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, very well said. And your point about taking two years to get back to relatively full labor utilization is an incredibly important point. And I think it brings into perspective just the size of the hole that we have in the employment markets. You know, I'd, Ed, I glossed over a little bit the difference between the U3 rate. In fact, I didn't mention it at all. I just stated the rates, the U3 rate and the U6 rate. Could you explain why that distinction is so important? That's because, you know, if you take an all-encompassing look at people who are looking, who are working part-time, you know, uh, uh, for not for uh, because they want to, but because they can't get a full-time position and all that, and you boil it down into one number, it gives you a much greater sense of the level of economic distress than if you just take the typical U3 number, which is only uh, you know the very strictest form of unemployment where people are completely severed uh, and and looking for employment actively at, right. at any particular time. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe the short answer to that is that just the U3, if you want an easy way to remember it, it generally understates the problem. Right, yeah. And so I think that if you really want to know uh, how broad the problem is, you know, it's not saying that all these people are, strictly speaking, completely unemployed, they have no income coming in, you can get look at the U6 number. And that gives you a, a sense of the percentage of people who are under stress as a result of a poor uh, jobs environment. Yeah, that's very well said. Um, you know, the other thing that we discussed a little bit there uh, was the rollback of the reopenings. And I guess implicit in that is the the rising threat right now based on the numbers, based on the data that COVID seems to be posing to the US and indeed the global economy. Yeah, and you know, let's go back to late April. I think it was like April 26, April 27. I came on RVDB, I said, I believe that Europe will outperform because uh, the U.S. will roll back prematurely and that will be negative for uh, equities and, uh, and for the U.S. economy. So it, it, that is starting to play out. We, in the month of June, uh, European equities outperformed U.S. equities for the first time exactly because of this reason. And I, I expect that that's going to continue to be the case, at least from an economic perspective and probably from a stock market perspective. And so the initial uptick that we saw, the reopening rally, it, it, it can continue to go on because, you know, op, you know, the momentum is to the upside, but it's going to stall out going forward because the number of cases of COVID are going to put a chill on people's desire to both work in places where they can be infected and also to consume and shop in places where they can be infected. And yes. this is irrespective of what the government does. There was an interesting study that used cell phone data, and they found that uh, during uh, certain parts of the economy, certain times in the economy in the U.S., there was a fall off of 60 percent of consumption and only seven percent of that uh of that number that is seven percent of 60 could be explained by actual government mandate so that is is the the free market the market is in in consumers are leading government uh the government is responding to what they understand 
that the populace wants. And what the populace wants is, is they want to be safe. And this is going to have a negative impact on the economy. Yeah. You know, I remember our discussions about that, and you were absolutely prescient on the relative outperformance of Europe. In fact, you had a very nuanced thesis around why this was the case. I remember you discussing uh, the social welfare states uh, in Europe and, and the support networks that they provided uh, that allowed them to absorb these types of shocks more effectively, which you correctly predicted was going to result in a lower rate of impact uh, to COVID virus and ultimately a lower economic impact and cost. Yeah, and, th and think of it this way. I mean, you know, the resiliency of the American economy is about our flexibility. But in this case, because our social safety net is more porous, what it has meant is is, is that in this sort of a shock, it, it's much, uh, you, you do not uh, get as much of a boost that allows people to stay at home. People must work. They need to get out there and get the paycheck. Otherwise, bad things are going to happen. And what that ultimately means is that there's this, this stress, this, this move to try to open up as quickly as possible before the virus is completely under control. Right. I, you know, I think New Zealand, which had the strictest lockdown of most of the developed economies, is a perfect example of this, where basically they've only had like five cases of COVID since they've released the lockdown. Why? Because if people aren't uh, mingling for two or three weeks at a time, basically the virus uh, peters out. But yeah. can can you have that sort of like in, enormous shutdown to allow that to happen? The United States cannot. And that's why we reopened. And we're, we're going to pay the price for that. You know, it's so interesting, Ed. You you and I haven't gone wobbly. We're both two very much uh, free markets uh, kind of guys. We love flexible labor markets. But I guess the lesson here is there really is no one right policy and and different policies benefit different scenarios different regimes different risks and different threats and in this particular instance i mean the us has outperformed europe uh decade after decade on any number of metrics uh, and some of that is due to precisely the policies now that could be posing a threat to the us economy right exactly and you know if i were more of a skeptic of the united states i might say that you know even though the us has outperformed a lot of that outperformance has gone to the upper middle class and the 1%, and it hasn't really trickled down to everyone else. And so that outperformance is to a degree not shared across the board. And it's exactly those same people who are bearing the brunt of what's happening right now. Yeah. So there are two different ways that you can definitely look at this. But nonetheless, the reality is, is that the U.S. has outperformed economically. It's outperformed in terms of the markets. It's still the world's reserve currency. And I think, uh, you know, people, there's always going to be a bid for U.S. assets as a result of all of those factors. But in the short to medium term, I think that the numbers that just came out today are not reflective of what we're going to see going forward between June and September. The question is, is what happens with markets over that time frame? I thought it was interesting, the conversation I had with Mark Ritchie, uh, which I believe was yesterday. It might have been the day before, I, I, I can't remember, but Mark Ritchie, he's a, a momentum, I would call it, uh, momentum and technical trader. And what he was saying is when you look at the breadth of the rally since March, when you look at the numbers of new leaders in the market, I'm not talking about Fang, I'm talking about biotech, I'm talking about Zoom, companies like that, the digitization. And when you also look at um, you know, 
volatility and the number of, of stocks that are above their 50 and 200 day moving average, all of those things are telling him that the market wants to move higher. So yeah. irrespective of what we're saying here, I think we still have to wonder, is that going to translate into uh, any downshift in the market over the next, I would say, two to three months? Um, yeah. and, and let me just add that Mark, he talks about some of these indicators that he looks at saying three, six, 12 months out that the market should be higher than it is today. Uh, I question that. I certainly could see the market higher in August and September, but I believe that if we don't get this uh, reopening uh, rollback under control, it will have a hit on equity prices. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing the Mark Ritchie interview that you did, especially because I think it's so important to keep looking at this from different angles, look at it from the three to six to 12 month momentum trading angle, to look at it from the broader policy angle. In order to figure out what's happening, you really cannot look at it through a single window. You have to be flexible, you have to be dynamic, and you have to incorporate different kinds of views. So for that reason, really looking forward to watching that interview. Yeah, and I think it really sort of reflects there are different time frames over which you can think about this. And there are also uh, bulls versus bears and, and people who are in between. And I think it's good to get a multiplicity of different views on that. My, my desire when I was talking to Mark was not to pepper him with my own views and to make it seem uh, like I was skeptical and to bias the interview in that direction, but to just let him say what he had to say you know, prod and, and get the full measure of that. And I hope that I was successful in doing that. Yes, you always are. So I'm sure you are in this case. Thank you. I, I hope so. Yeah. So, you know, talking of numbers, let's do a quick rundown on what's actually happening with the virus. We've alluded to it a number of times. So uh, the short answer is it's not good news. We've hit record single day case counts five times in the last 10 days or so. Florida is getting hit very bad, over 10,000 new cases uh, in a single day. In Texas, uh, more than 8,000. Uh, California, more than 7,500. Uh, overall, it's more than 50,000 new cases uh, on Wednesday of this week. That's a single day case count. Um, you know, we're obviously heading toward a holiday weekend. People are going to be out and mingling. And the short answer is we are absolutely recording numbers uh, on a daily case count basis uh, that are higher than they ever have been before. We now have 2.7 million cumulative cases here in the U.S., uh, and nearly 130,000 of our fellow Americans have died. Right. And, you know, this is a combination of a number of different factors, including the fact that we're testing more, including the fact that uh, younger people are social distancing less, and the fact that uh, we have, as a result, a, a higher positive rate per test than we've had before. And so the 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 I think the risk is 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 that these numbers go up and therefore death counts go up and people uh, pull back both in terms of consumption and also in terms of showing up for work and that we have to have a rollback of the uh, of the reopening. The positive, I think, is is that it's the 20 to 44-year-old cohort, younger people. We've dealt with the virus before. So to the degree that we do have this rollback, it's not 100% clear to me yet that the rollback is going to precipitate a, a double-dip recession, that uh, GDP growth is going to go negative. Uh, it, it could do, but it's not 100% necessarily the case. We just have to see how, how it is 
But this is not what's happening in Europe. It's not what's happening in other developed economies like Japan, per se. So I think that the U.S. is the outlier here. And so my thinking is over the medium term, you're going to see some underperformance, not just from June, but probably through July, August, until this whole thing gets tamped down. Right. You know, talking of which, one of the things that we did not have the opportunity to discuss uh, was the Fed minutes that just came out from the June meeting. Uh, effectively, the Fed was discussing new ways to support the economy. Uh, in the minutes, they they stated that they expect to keep rates near zero until 2022. Uh, and the Fed believes we need, and I'm quoting here, highly accommodative monetary policy and sustained support from fiscal policy, close quote. There's still not a lot of agreement on where they're going to get it from. Um, you know, there's a, a discussion about potentially letting the uh, inflation rate run hot, so to speak, above the stated 2% target. Uh, but if there's one thing there's agreement on, it's, quote, nearly all participants indicated that they had many questions regarding the costs and benefits of such an approach. So there's apparently a great commitment to supporting the economy. There's a question, a concern about the costs versus the benefits, and there's still no clear-cut path to understanding what precise policy modality is going to bring us there. Yeah, and I think that there are, I would say that there are five different things at play with the Fed. There, uh, We have traditional monetary policy, which is rate policy. And you can cut rates or you can raise rates in order to get uh, accommodation or uh, you can uh, get restriction. That's what they normally use. That's their bread and butter. When they hit the zero lower bound, when rates go to zero, they're out of cuts. They're out of room. There's nothing else left to do. Then they can move to forward guidance where they say, you know what, we're not only going to keep it at zero now, but we're going to keep it at zero up until this particular date in the future. They can make sure that the market understands that the Fed is 100 uh, percent behind a, a particular policy for an extended period of time, forward guidance. The third thing that they can do, and they have done, uh, as well as forward guidance in the last uh, great financial crisis is quantitative easing, where they just buy up assets with the purported uh, purpose of lowering interest rates over a longer period of time. So those are the three policies that they've used before and that they're using now. Now they're saying, you know what, this, uh, this reopening is not going as according to plan. Uh, we already were going to use these policies and we are prepared to use others, but we're even more prepared now because potentially reopening could come unstuck. So there are two more policies that they're thinking about. Policy number four is what's called average inflation targeting. So rather than uh, you know uh, allowing the uh, economy to reach the 2% hurdle, they say that actually it was below 2% in the past. We'll let it go rise above 2% so that on average the number is 2%. So catch up inflation. And if that doesn't work, they're, they're prepared for a fifth policy, which is called yield curve control, which is where they peg rates, let's call it the three-year or the five-year rate for treasuries at a specific level. And they say, we're going to buy up assets at this level until the treasury rate reaches this specific yield level. So those two policies, they're prepared to go into play. Some people are saying uh, yield curve control can happen as soon as September. Other people are saying it could be 2021. But irrespective, if the economy deteriorates, that's what you should expect to happen. Those two things, they will go into effect. And the Fed, even if they're squeamish, they're prepared to, to get it done. 
Yeah. Uh, prepare to hear more acronyms, AIC, YCC, because <laughs> we don't have enough in monetary policy. But look, you know, the point is very serious. I mean, I think if you're not as uh, following this as closely as you are, you know, my takeaway from that, if I wanted to take the 50,000 foot view is, look, anytime the Fed is discussing additional monetary policy tools, it is not suggestive of a bullish outlook on future economic output. No, I mean, it goes back to the whole thing that we were talking about with dividends when Lael Brainerd was saying, actually, you didn't go far enough in terms of restricting dividends. When the Fed is saying that we want to regulate banks more tightly with how they disperse capital, they're telling you they expect bad things could happen more so than they've said publicly in the past. This is also telling you the exact same thing. They're creating more, they're creating additional tools. And then the question is, are we over relying on the Fed? Are we over relying on monetary policy to get it done? Uh, is there a place for fiscal? Are there other things that could be done in order to prevent the bottom from falling out? And I don't have the answer to that question, but we know that financial policy, monetary policy affects financial assets first and foremost. So you're going to have automatically a boost in financial assets first before it hits the real economy. That in and of itself is going to create inequality and people are not going to be happy about that. Yeah, absolutely. And there's an efficiency as well. It's not a one-to-one -one correspondence. There's a rule of diminishing return that starts to come into play with these types of policies. The more you do, the less you get per unit uh, of additional effort. Um, and uh, there really are significant questions around it. And then also, as, as you suggested, um, this question of over-reliance and the idea that, you know, continued bad news is continued good news because it means more support from the central bank. To tie that together, to tie together the Fed with what Mr. Ritchie was saying, you know, the last paragraph, I think, of uh, your credit write-downs email today nails it, right? Markets are liking this report. They want to rally, even if they are technically overbought. The trend for now seems higher. The rollback in stimulus data throughout the summer and early fall are where the rubber meets the road. I still see September and October as the bogey for when that data ultimately matters. So reaffirming that time frame and reasserting precisely what we've been talking about, uh, the technical factors, the momentum factors, combined with the impact from the Fed and the expectation or potentially, I guess one could say, the signaling of additional policy uh, tools if things do not materialize in the direction they hope they do. Yeah, so we, I think that we still have another one or two months. Uh, I think this weekend will be nice to see you know, what sort of social distancing we have and what impact that will have two to three weeks from now in terms of tamping down on the numbers for COVID. We'll also start to see you know, whether the infection rate leads to more deaths and whether it has a chilling effect and how much of a chilling effect on consumption and on business closures. And then the Fed can get into, into play. But by the time our holidays are over in August and we're ready to go back to school, I think that's when, as I said in the piece, the rubber will hit the road. That's when we'll see you know, the market uh, turn. People are going to come back. Traders are going to come back from their holidays. They're going to be in a different mindset. They're going to be like thinking, you know, October uh, reports for Q4 coming out, 2021, uh, 2021 and Q4 estimates are coming out for earnings. Let's see what happens. That's when uh, I think we're going to see whether or not uh, the worm turns, so to speak. Yeah.
talking of holidays, as we head into this July 4th weekend, extended weekend, final thoughts, Adam, what you're going to be looking for, thinking about? Yeah, I'm going to be looking at social distancing first and foremost over this week, uh, over this weekend. I'm going to be looking at uh, the number of different companies that start to give guidance for Q4 and 2021. And I'm going to look for the number of companies that are out, that are beating earnings estimates, like FedEx, as an example, before. Um, you know, so I want to see a lot. Of, there are a lot of different data points that I want to see there. But on the macroeconomic side, I'm going to continue to look at jobless claims. I know that people say that jobless claims are a lagging indicator. Um, I don't think that that's actually the case. I think that. Uh, it's the the change. It's the derivative that you want to see. If job if jobless claims are not going down quickly enough, to me that's an indicator that uh, the we're going to hit the uh, a, a, an inflection point. We're going to start going from the straight up V to the, to that uh, reverse radical. Uh, that's that's what I'm looking for. So my hope is 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 that all of those things pan out for the best. My suspicion is that, is that they won't. Yeah. During unprecedented times, the action in crises happens at the margin. Exactly. So be safe on your July 4th and, uh, you know, be merry. <laughs> this, weekend, this weekend, I'm going to be looking to an ice cold beer in the shade. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm going to go for the wine and vodka. Uh, that, that, that's where I'm headed. You're a classier man than I am. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Good to talk to you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.